Good morning. We're glad that you are here. If you'll turn to Psalm 28, that's where we'll be for, well, the next three weeks. So it's good to get familiar with it quick. If you're a visitor with us this morning, uh, we want to count it a privilege. We want to let you know that we count it a privilege to worship together. Um, the aim of our time when we gather as a church is to glorify God. And so as we're glorifying God through song, as we're glorifying God through prayer, through testimony, through the exposition of the word, uh, it's always a privilege to see new faces every week. So uh, if you're here, we hope you feel welcome, and we hope you're encouraged by uh, what the Lord uh, has for us out of his word this morning. Um, we've spent the last two months in Ephesians. Pastor Ben, I'm one of three pastors here, and Pastor Ben has spent the last two months in Ephesians helping us through the text to consider how the Christian household differed from every other Christian household uh, in the world at that time. There were lots of households, lots of mothers and fathers, lots of husbands and wives, and lots of children. And we spent two solid months looking at Ephesians 5 and Ephesians, a little bit of Ephesians 6, considering what's the difference between the Christian husband, the Christian wife, the Christian father, the Christian mother, and the Christian children. In the same way, for the next three weeks, we're going to spend time in Psalm 28 considering how Christians are to give thanks. Yes, I am preaching a sermon series titled Give Thanks in the Month of November, but I'm not just doing that because it's what's trendy and we think it would be hot and y'all would really appreciate it. What we're trying to do is say, okay, what does it mean for Christians? How do we do that and what's the source of that? So that's why we'll be in Psalm 28. Let's pray together and then we'll dive into the text. Lord, we counted a privilege this morning uh, to be here and to know that you hear our prayers, to know that you are present with us, to know that the Holy Spirit uh, inhabits your people and inhabits our praises. Uh, what a privilege that is. Lord, we uh, want to pray for some other churches before we get going this morning, as we always do, because your word tells us to. First, I want to pray uh, for First Baptist Sutherland Springs, um, as this is their first Sunday after a um, horrific nightmare of a church shooting uh, last week. Um, my understanding is that half of the members have gone on to be with you of that church, and I cannot imagine the heartache, the pain, the sadness, the grief um, that must be uh, going on in Sutherland Springs. And so we pray for that church. We pray for that community as a whole. And our prayer is that they would have a real sense of your presence. Uh, our prayer is that you would do, as we see the psalmist um, proclaiming over and over again, bringing healing, bringing peace, bringing encouragement, and bringing a much-needed love of a heavenly father who cares about the details of the lives of his children. We pray that you would comfort and encourage them and uh, bring men and women who are sound in the word and sound in the spirit uh, to speak truth. I pray that you would allow... Um, comfort to happen there. As your word says, we comfort others with the comfort with which we've been comforted. And I pray that you would uniquely comfort them through other believers by the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for a local church. We pray for Cavanaugh United Methodist and just for Pastor John Kay as he's preaching this morning. I pray that they would be enjoying you. You would be glorified there. I pray for him as he leads that church. He's been there since 2016 and just pray that you would um, continue to help him make connections and to um, really enjoy you so that that spills over as he shepherds and ministers to the flock. Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning. 
pray that you would guide us accordingly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back in the day, we had things called photo albums. Back when I was a boy, um, you might be thinking, hey, I have those on my phone. But the ones that I'm talking about are different. Um, they, they, there was a thing called film, and it was this ridiculous, archaic process where you would have this, this device called a camera. It wasn't, they, they had cameras separate from phones back then. And they had a device called a camera, and you would take this little roll of film, and you would put it in the camera, and you would take pictures of important things. And then you would go through this ridiculously lengthy process of trying to get the film out of the camera without ruining it, and then you put it in this little special canister, and then you put it over in the corner, and you forget about it until you decide where are those pictures, and then you would go and find about a hundred of those little canisters and go up to, uh, it was Eckerd's at the time, does anyone remember Eckerd's? And you would process those, and within 24 short hours, they could get you your pictures back. So when I say photo albums, the ones I'm talking about are different from the ones on your phone. First of all, they didn't include pictures of every blessed event in your life. There were no pics of what you had for breakfast, brunch, lunch, dinner, and dinner. There were no pics of the uh, many outfits that you wore on a particular day. It just included the main points. That's what a photo album was. And then even within a house, you'd have your photo albums, but then each kid would have their own baby album. And it's, it's interesting. I'm firstborn, so my baby album was good. But my fourth brother... Or third brother, I have, there's four boys in our family. Um, his baby album includes a receipt and a cost tag on it. There's, I think there's a picture from the hospital that, he, that we put in there. Um, but that's usually how photo albums worked. So, so here's how uh, we would use photo albums. You, you would gather for, for uh, a holiday. And you'd break out the photo albums and you would look and you would go over some fun memories and you'd see what happened. And it didn't include everything, but it included the main events, the main points. There were pics of you as a baby, maybe first day of school, first little league game, maybe there's high school graduation, maybe there's college, maybe there's wedding. The main points. And here's what would happen. They were snapshots that told the story of your life or of the life of a family. Generations later, you could fill in the gaps as you looked at the snapshots. You could look at the snapshots and say, oh, that was... That was 2001. That was, that was the year that uh, Twin Towers got hit. Oh, that was, oh, I remember that year. That was the year my, my coach and we did a good job and we won the state championship. Or, oh, I remember that was the year y'all, got, y'all met and then y'all got married the next year. And, and all of a sudden, as you look at the photo album, you begin to fill in the gaps of what was going on in life. Even though the pictures weren't included, you could know what was going on in those gaps. This is how we should read the Psalms. As we spend three weeks in Psalm 28, we need to read the Psalms as though they are a photo album, like a photo album largely about the life of David as Yahweh's chosen king over Israel. To understand it, you have to be familiar with David's life, which means you really need to be familiar with the Old Testament. It's always funny to me that um, with our children, we give them those little bitty Bibles, and it has the New Testament and the Psalms. But the reality is you absolutely cannot understand the Psalms without the Old Testament. And that's why you don't see any grown men carrying around their little baby Bible to worship anymore. Because you, you, you realize, oh, I need that Old Testament to understand those Psalms. If you don't, if you try to look at the Psalms apart from the Old Testament story, um, 
It's largely just an emotional experience. One of my professors recently said that to approach the Psalms apart from the Old Testament, you turn it into pop psychology exploration of your own emotions. I know I've done that. I know there's times where I'm like in a bad mood or I'm anxious. I'm like, I just need a psalm to talk about that. And I'll go to a psalm and I'll be like, all right, yeah, that's my psalm. I'm going to think about that today. But I have no idea about the context of the psalm, who wrote it, where were they when they wrote it. And it really is just a pop psychology exploration of my own emotions. There's been times where I've gone to Psalm 1 and I've said, yes, don't sit in the seat of scoffers or sinners. I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to be blessed in everything I do. Psalm 1 is about Jesus. You can't just claim that without you know, getting, over, getting to the part about Jesus. And so we have to be careful as we approach the Psalms to make sure we do it understanding there's actually a storyline. There's actually a timeline. I was well into my adult life before I realized that the Psalms weren't just random collections of poems. But you can actually kind of know what's going on as you look through this photo album. So let's consider Psalm 28 as a snapshot in a larger photo album. I'm going to read it and I want you all to consider it as a snapshot in a larger photo album. Psalm 28, verse 1. This is of David. To you, O Lord, I call, my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. So very, very quickly from the beginning, we see that this is a photograph of, of a desperate trial, a, a, a dire circumstance. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Then there's a transition. Blessed be the Lord. For he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exalts and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is a photograph of someone's life, and that someone is David. The Psalms are broken down into five books, and here in the first book, what we're seeing are poems, things that David sat and wrote about after they happened, songs that are really snapshots about David's rise to power. The first two books, book one, book two in the Psalms, are about David going from being a shepherd in a field, watching after his father Jesse's sheep, to being the king of Israel, Yahweh's chosen king. And so those first two books in the Psalms are about his rise to power. So um, if, if I was to just throw a photo album at you right now of a bunch of strangers... Um, it'd be kind of awkward, right? If you were to just to, to look at a stranger's photo album and be like, yeah, I don't, I don't know these people. Um, I can't really fill in the gaps. You have to be familiar with the people in the photo album for it to be helpful. So we need to be a little more familiar with David. So we're going to take a few minutes to consider the setting of this psalm, and then we're going to look at three points that we can gain from it, and then a few questions for application. That's our roadmap for the morning. So the background here is this. Before David became the king of Israel, Israel's king was Saul. 
Kiddos, do you remember the stories about after the judges? Y'all studied them thoroughly. After the time of the judges, Israel wanted a king, and that wasn't really right because their king was Yahweh, but they wanted a king like the rest of the kingdoms because they thought that was what they needed. And so God appointed a guy named Samuel who appointed Saul as king. Saul was known for being a big guy, and he was a good leader in many ways, but Saul did not obey the Lord. God told Saul to do something very particular, and Saul did not do it because he thought he could make better decisions than Yahweh. And so he, he disobeyed the Lord. So God called Samuel to find and anoint a new king for Israel. And God sent Samuel to the house of Jesse. And after seeing all the other sons who would seem more likely to be maybe a king, he said, do you have any others? Jesse said, well, there's David. He's out in the field uh, tending to the flocks. And he said, bring him to me. And through a process ordained by God, Samuel uh, anointed David as king over Israel. Now, here's what we have to understand for the snapshot in this photo album to make any sense. Saul wasn't immediately replaced by David. If you can hang in here for these two minutes, it'll make a lot more sense when we get to the points in, in this psalm. But Saul was not immediately replaced by David. In fact, it was a slow, um, agonizing, long process. After Samuel was anointed, after Samuel anointed David, Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God left Saul. Saul was troubled in his soul. He called for someone to the king's house to play music for him to soothe his troubled soul. And lo and behold, guess who was chosen to do that? Little David. The one selected for the job was David, and over time, David gained a following for himself. Not only was able to soothe the king through the playing of music, but then it turned out he was good at some other things, too. David stood up to the Philistines, though the least likely, he was the one who slayed a giant named Goliath when everyone else was full of fear. We'll come back to that in a minute. His favor with the people grew, and he was appointed a commander of warriors in Saul's house. So we've gone from the little guy who's playing music to make me feel better to a commander of armies. And in fact, he was so successful that the people started writing songs. And they wrote a song where they said, um, you know, Saul kills thousands, but David kills tens of thousands. Well, imagine if you're a boss, and there's another employee who's successful, and the rest of everybody starts singing songs about the employee, and you as the boss are getting the brunt of the song. Like, man, employee is really great, but boss is okay. That'd be weird, right? You, you, you can imagine what impact that would have. Well, Saul was not digging what was going on. Ultimately, God had plans for David that he didn't have for Saul. And Saul became bitter. Over time, Saul became jealous. And Saul decided he wanted to murder David multiple times. He attacked David with a spear. And Scripture says, and God, God um, helped him to escape. God did not allow that to happen. God preserved David. Multiple occasions, Saul put an army of war, uh, warriors together to pursue David. And the goal was not just to scare David, but to kill David. But over and over, God spared David. So Psalm 28 is an account 
of one of those times where Saul and these armies are bearing down on David. That is the account. That's what's going on. When we look at this snapshot, we need to know if David looks completely freaked out in this snapshot, it's because Saul's trying to kill him. That's Psalm 28. So now that we're familiar with the photo album, and now that we understand that we're looking at only one photo, we're going to take a closer look. We're going to look at the details of what's going on in this picture. And as we look closer, I want us to see three things. And the first thing is this. If you're writing notes, this is when you write down an important point. Number one, the source of your hope is the aim of your song. The source of your hope is the aim of your song. I spent some time looking at the, the Billboard top hits, and it would appear that most of the most popular songs that were ever written, the source of hope in those songs is uh, women and money and having a good time. So if you go look at the Billboard Top Hits, the, remember the source of your hope is the aim of your song. So if you, if you want to know what people's hope is, you can say, well, what are they writing songs about? And, and apparently our culture loves songs about finding the love of your life, Mm-mm, find the love of your life, or getting rich, getting lots of money, or just maybe you're just a little more chilled individual. Man, I just want to have a good time. That's the whole point in my life. I just want to have a good time. I don't want to, I don't want to listen to songs about having a good time. That's the reality for a number of people. And so um, the source of your hope is the aim of your song. We can look at these songs and know uh, what people are hoping for. At our house, we're, we're into the, uh, the Hallmark Christmas movies. I don't know if any of y'all are into that. And I say that as a pastor, and you might be like, oh, he must be the weakest pastor if he likes Hallmark movies, because that's not very Jesus-y. It's really not. It's sort of a guilty pleasure. These, these movies are ridiculous. Raise your hand if you've watched at least 10 Hallmark movies already. You do it right now. I'm not alone in here. I'm not alone. All right. So these Hallmark movies, if there's always like a janitor that might be Santa Claus. There's always some random character that has a big white beard. And, and, and as an adult, you watch it, you're like, is that the guy? Is that him? Is that Santa Claus? And there's always a broken history. There's, there's a need for hope because something's not going right. It's, it's either a single mom or, a, or, a, or, a, or some sad story, and usually there's a sad, broken um, trail of love in the background. And so these Hallmark movies, if, if, if you're watching them, which I know more of you are than raised your hand, if you're watching them, it's the exact same storyline over and over again. And essentially, if, if the source of your hope is the aim of your song, what you can discern from those movies is the hope is to either find the meaning of Christmas again, which is usually linked to finding the love of your life in a setting with Christmas lights. If they're going to kiss, it's going to snow. If they're going to kiss, it's going to snow. And always, somewhat creepily in the background, is the guy with the white beard who may or may not be Santa Claus. There's usually spiritual undertones in the movies where um, oh, you were born on December 25th. Interesting. It's, it's just weird. It's, just, it's all this conglomeration of just sort of odd moralisms. And usually it's about love. And usually it's about finding the, the, the meaning of Christmas. And it's just very, very emotional. We can look at those silly examples and know people write songs about what they're passionate about. People write songs about their goals. That's another way of saying hope. What is your hope? What's your goal? What are you aiming at? Well, here, here's the situation for David in Psalm 28. If the source of your hope is the aim of your song, David's situation is dire. David's situation is really difficult. He's physically sickened by the threat of death. 
He's so weary of his enemies and so entrenched in battle that he's beginning to feel like he may very well be dragged off with evildoers who will inevitably meet the judgment of God. He's so entrenched in it that he just feels death in his bones. He feels sick. Saul and his army have been pursuing David over and over. And in the process, they wouldn't just say, hey, we're here to kill David. In the process, they would befriend. It says those who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Like it's enough for someone to just be evil. But then to act like you're a peacemaker in the process of being evil is just that much more uh, manipulative. And so they were not just pursuing David, but they would speak peace with the people around David, with the tribes around David, in hopes of gaining some footing to actually find David as he spent much time in the hills hiding. At what point he was in a cave hiding. David is being pursued. Imagine if you were being pursued. David's being pursued, threatened. The walls are closing in. He's weary. He's tired. He's in need of help. Imagine if someone was pursuing your life and they made friends with your coworkers in order to get closer to you. Would that freak you out? Would that make you a little paranoid? Would that make you feel uneasy? Would you lose sleep? Would you be full of fear and anxiety? That's the kind of thing that he is experiencing right here. And look at what he does. In the midst of this horrible, tragic nightmare of a moment, look at what David does. Verses 1 and 2. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Be not deaf to me, lest if you become silent to me, I become like those who go to the pit. God, if you don't hear me in the midst of this, I am no better off than these murderers who you will judge one day. So I have to know, God, that you'll hear me. You almost hear him saying, God, I need you to hear me so that I can hear you. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift my hands toward your most holy Sanctuary. The singular source of David's hope is God. God is not one of many names on an emergency call list for David. God is the singular hope of David. When he is anxious and dismayed, he urgently goes to the Lord. He doesn't sit and think about it for a few days and then like, you know what, I'm going to pray about this. No, he's in a horrible circumstance and he urgently goes to the Lord and he expects something. He doesn't just go to God, but he actually expects something. Are we allowed to expect things of God? Is David okay here? Is he stepping out of bounds here? It appears he expects something. In particular, he expects God to listen, and he expects God to hear. Do you know that you can do that? He expects God to listen, and he expects God to hear. The source of David's hope causes him to pray to God, but the prayer is not an end in itself. He wants something from God. God is the source of his hope. He wants real help from a real God for a real problem. Oftentimes we pray as if prayer is an end in itself. Sort of like, well, you just go pray about it. You're going to feel better. I'm sure of it. Oh, you're, you're going through this horrible trial. You just pray about it and you're going to feel better. And it's, you can almost hear David saying, no, no, no. I'll feel better when God answers me. He expects an answer from the Lord. It's not just prayer in itself. His hope is in the God of the prayer. To illustrate this, I've used this illustration before when we're in the Psalms, but many people in this body have adopted children, some from hard places. At one point here at Crosspoint, 25% of our children's ministry was adopted children. And we've had 
different trainings, darkness to light training and power to connect training, because sometimes it's hard to connect with kiddos from hard places. You don't know how hard their life was before they came into your forever home. They'd been wrong. They'd gone through trials. Trust had been broken. Needs had not been met. And there's this special moment that occurs after you adopt a child that's been through those kinds of trials and hardships. And that special moment occurs when that child first brings you a problem. It's a sweet and good moment. Why is it a sweet and good moment? Well, it's special because it indicates that they're connecting with you and more important that they trust you. We take our problems to the one whom we trust. And so they bring the... um, They bring the problem to the person that they trust, and a good father and a good mother will help with that problem. They won't look at that child and say, you're such an idiot. Why are you bothering me? I don't want you here. I don't want you coming to me and bothering me with your problem. No, they say, let me help you with that problem. That's why I'm here. That's why I call you mine now, and you can call me yours. David is simply bringing his complaint to the one in whom he trusts, Yahweh. And we know from verse 6 that Yahweh heard David's pleas for mercy. In verse 6 it says, blessed be the Lord. He's heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. Yahweh hears David's pleas for mercy like a good father. And the result is a song from David in verse 7 where he gives thanks to God. And I just want us to notice this morning that he's more than just thankful. He actually goes out of his way to give thanks. Psalm 9 says, recount the deeds of the Lord. Just don't don't just be in a general state of thankfulness. Actually give thanks to the Lord. Tell others what God has done. Thank God. Give a song of thanks to the Lord for what he has done. It's a relational response. When that good daddy or that good mommy tends to the problem, often the child will respond with a smile or a hug or a little happy dance. And David rightly responds with this song of of thanks, reiterating that the source of your hope will be the aim of your song. And you can know where your hope is if you look at the details of your song. Here he gives thanks to God because his hope was always in God alone. Which which brings us to our second point, which is kind of obvious as it falls from the first one. The first point is the, the source of your hope will be the aim of your song. And then the second point is that if God is not your only hope, He will not be your greatest comfort and help in your trial. If God is not your only hope, he will not be your greatest comfort and help in trial. Now, that's not punitive. I'm not up here saying, you know what, since you didn't put God first, he's not going to help you. What I'm saying is, is, is that if he's not your hope in the middle of your trial, you're not looking to him. You're looking to all the other things that might solve the problem. That might be money. That might be power. It might be influence of others. It might be the help that others can give. But if God's not your only hope, he won't be your greatest comfort in helping your trial. There's a catechism question. Kiddos, do y'all know your catechism questions? What is your only hope in life and in death? Say it out loud if y'all know it. What is your only hope in life and death? That we are not our own but belong to God. That's how we do it in our house. We cheese, we cheese it up. The answer is, what is your, the question is, what is your only hope in life and in death? Not one of many, your only hope in life and death. And the answer is that we are not our own, 
but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, I want us to see that David didn't decide to make God his hope during the trial. David didn't decide, you know what, this is an emergency, and I'm going to make God my hope. It happened in the fields when he was watching over the flock. The decision was made long before. We see evidence in Scripture of the decision of God being his only hope being made during just a normal work day when he was tending to his father's flocks. And that would lead to greater victories and greater hope. Turn to 1 Samuel 17. In order to understand the Psalms, 1 and 2 Samuel are hugely important. And in 1 Samuel 17... We see the story of David and Goliath. And as we read this story and we hear what David says, we get some background into his hope in the Lord. So the story is that Goliath was a Philistine, and he would come down day after day and taunt the Israelites. And he would say, you know, if you can defeat me, we'll we'll surrender. And day after day, the Israelites were very, very scared. So David, who's not even a warrior at this point, comes and brings lunch to his brothers, who are the real warriors. He's literally the pizza delivery guy of the story, okay? And when he gets there, he sees what's going on, and he says in verse 26 of 1 Samuel 17, And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And then he says, For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David's looking at the whole situation different because of his hope. He's looking at the situation and going, hold on, hold the phone. These are the armies of the living God, and this uncircumcised Philistine is defying us. Who's this guy? And then he goes on, and David said to Saul, this is when they were still on good terms before things had turned, and Saul's jealousy had set in. This is before that. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Saul said to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, "Uh, your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. David's like, yeah, I punched a lion in the face. I smacked a bear in the ear, whatever. He's saying, no, no, I've been, I've been here. I've, I've done this before. But that's not actually his hope. He's just saying what happened. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Yes, he's big, but he will fall. For he has defied the armies of the living God. David is saying, look at, all, look at our armies. There's a living God who should be our hope, and this guy's going to fall. Just like these other animals, David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to him, Go, and the Lord be with you. And you can almost see David being like, Oh, I'm going to. I'm going to go, and the Lord is with me. He's Yahweh. He's my only hope. And we know the story goes. He goes out, and he kills Goliath. And that's where the coloring books for the children end. Because what, after, what happens after that is a little more bloody. But he kills Goliath with one stone in a sling. We need to remember that David 
was the one who said in Psalm 20, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we, the armies of the living God, trust in the name of the Lord our God. David was the same one who said in Psalm 19, The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. I want you to picture David. You can almost picture him as a shepherd out in the fields tending to the flocks. He looks up at the end of a long day and there's a beautiful sunset. And as he looks at that sunset, David's mind immediately goes to the goodness of Yahweh. Every single day, he sees something of Yahweh. Every single night, there's knowledge that is gained by Yahweh. In all of it, he sees something about God because God is over all of it. I want you to picture David getting into a horse, or onto a horse, not into a horse. That would be, that's a different story. Getting onto a horse or getting into a chariot, mounting up to battle the Philistines yet again. And you can almost hear David saying, I don't trust this horse. My trust is not in this horse. I'm, uh, I don't trust this chariot. My, my trust is not in this chariot. God, I trust you. And because God alone was David's hope during the beautiful sunsets, the good times, because God alone was David's hope under those starry skies at night, God alone was also David's great comfort and help and hope in trial. He didn't just decide to make God his hope when things were horrible. God was his hope every moment of every day. Before he was ever a leader, before he ever had a big moment in his life, God alone was his hope. This caused David to give thanks. Remember, we're talking about how does the Christian give thanks. Well, if your hope is not in God, you will not ultimately give thanks to God. You'll give thanks to someone. Your song will be sung, but will it be unto the Lord? So the source of our hope is the aim of our song. If God's not our greatest hope, he won't be our greatest comfort in trial because we won't even be looking to him. We'll be looking elsewhere. And then our third point for the morning, the last and shortest, is that for God to be your hope, you have to trust his promises. For God to be your hope, you have to trust his promises. What do we mean when we say hope? Do we just hope for what we prefer? Do we just hope that God will be benevolent? Do we just hope that God will always choose what we would choose on our own? Is that our hope? No, your hope is directly linked to the promises of God. This is what David did. You might hear David's words in Psalm 28 and be like, God, don't be deaf to me. God, you have to listen to me. And you might be thinking, man, that is David getting a little presumptuous? Does David sound entitled? Why, why would David think that he could demand God to hear him and to listen to him? Why would David think that? And, and it's found in the promises that God made to David. Turn to 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7. Last time we were in the Psalms, we looked at these verses, and um, it's fitting to do when you're going to be jumping into the Psalms for any length of time, because it helps us to understand some of the things that are said. Otherwise, David might just sound whiny. David might sound entitled if we don't know the promises of God. In fact, if you think David sounds out of line, it's likely that you're unaware of a promise that he's drawing on. 2 Samuel 7, verse 8 
Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. And listen to what God says to David. This is where David is, the Lord is entering into a covenant with David. As David is now making the official transition to being Yahweh's king over Israel. Thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince or leader over my people Israel. God makes it clear to David, I was there when you were shepherding the sheep. More was going on when you were shepherding the sheep than you realized. But I took you from shepherding those sheep that you should be a leader over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all of your enemies before you. Lest you think that you cut them off yourself, though you were a good warrior, though you were a commander of armies, lest you think that, just just know I cut your enemies off before you, and I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. So we see that this covenant that God's making with David is bigger than David. It's about Yahweh's people. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. That's a promise from God. I will give you rest from your enemies. So in Psalm 28, when there seems to be enemies all around and no rest from them, David says, God, I'm drawn on the promise that you're going to give me rest from my enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. We're talking about these generations that eventually get to Jesus when he commits an iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But look what it says. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Underline forever in your Bibles. Shall be made sure forever. And in fact, go back to verse 13 and underline forever there. Because what God is talking about is a promise to David in this covenant that means forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Go ahead and underline that forever as well. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. What we need to understand is David never has an expectation upon God that God does not first present to David in the form of a promise. David does not ever have an expectation upon God that God has not first presented to David in the form of a promise. Rather than crying out to God in this trial and saying, God, this isn't what I had in mind, it would appear from these promises that David is crying out to God and saying, God, this doesn't seem to be what you had in mind. You said, I would birth offspring, and from that offspring would come a king forever and a kingdom forever. So as these enemies are closing in on me, God, I'm crying out to you, and I'm laying claim to the promises because I want a throne forever because that's what you want. I'm not saying that this isn't how I thought it would go, God. I'm saying this isn't how you said it would go. For if David dies before the house is built, 
before the offspring comes, before the kingdom is established, what does this mean for forever? What does it mean for this offspring that would one day sit on the throne forever? So in the moment where things do not seem to be going according to promises, David simply cries out to God with the promises. And you need to know that it is pleasing to God. We know from Psalm 28, he heard his pleas and he saved him. And he showed him mercy and he showed him love. So what we learn from this psalm, at least in this first week, is that the, um, the source of your hope is the aim of your song. If God's not your only hope, he won't be your greatest comfort in trial. And for God to be your hope, you must trust his promises. So for application this morning, I just have a few questions to ask that I really would encourage you to write down and think about the questions. Question number one is this. What is the source of your hope? What is the source of your hope? If you were to recount this last week, where did you go for relief and comfort and guidance and help and encouragement this week? What is the source of your hope? The second question is kind of a different way of looking at the first one. It's where do you urgently go when things are urgent? When there's a trial, when you get bad news, when you understand and come to realize that something horrible has happened, when you come to realize that, man, the numbers haven't added up and we're all of a sudden in a hardship, when you get bad news about health, whatever it might be, where do you go? Do you call your mom before you get on your knees and talk to the Lord? You call your dad? Do you go to the liquor cabinet? Do you go to the refrigerator? Do you get angry? Where do you urgently go when things are urgent? Is God just one name on a long emergency call list? Number three, this is a difficult one. If you're in a trial right now and you don't feel like God's bringing any comfort and any help, It's good to ask the question, is it possible that you're putting your hope in something other than God? When we gather for worship, this is a wonderful time to identify our idols and to identify our sin. We're about to take the supper in a moment, and I want to encourage you as you think through these questions, if there's anything you're putting before God, anything you have greater hope in, be it money, fleshly stuff, food, alcohol, sway, uh, the opinion of other people, whatever it might be, That is an idol. And followers of God who are in Christ put to death the deeds of the flesh and we repent of our sin. So it's it's a very fitting time as we gather here for you to identify that and to repent as we prepare to take the supper. And the fourth question is probably the most broad. It's just, do you know God's promises so that you can trust him through them? Do you know God's promises so that you can trust him through them. As we take the supper, I cannot help but think of 2 Corinthians 1, 20 through 22, that tells us that all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. All of the promises of God that were ever made about being a people who are called apart who would be a part of a kingdom forever, who understand that the fleeting nature of this life is not the end of all things for you because there is a throne forever and a kingdom forever. All of those promises were fulfilled completely in Christ and the promises of God find their yes in Christ. 
You have been invited into a relationship with the Lord through Christ to be able to speak those promises to him and claim those promises. This is not a name and claim whatever the heck you want. It's a name and claim the promises of God. And knowing that in Christ, the answer is yes. The answer is absolutely, you're mine. The answer is no different than that parent or those parents that adopted that child and said, yes, because I'm yours and you're mine now. This is a forever thing, a forever home, a forever relationship. That's what our Lord invites us into. The promises of God find their yes in Christ. David was a type of Christ, and we trust that God's promises find their yes in Christ. In 1 Corinthians, we see uh, a recounting of the last supper that was taken before Christ was crucified. And it's something that we regularly go to before we take the supper because it kind of fits us rightly to take the supper. And look at what it says. We're talking about Thanksgiving here and the kind of hope that it takes to actually be thankful rightly as a Christian. And in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, 23, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. That was a a major trial for Christ. The night where he was betrayed, right before he went to the cross, and what did he do? He gave thanks. And he said this. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is impossible to take the supper in an unthankful way. If we take the supper, we do it rightly when we do so in remembrance of Christ and in anticipation of his return. And the remembrance of Christ and the anticipation of his return should make our souls soar. It should encourage us in the unshakable hope that we have. So I encourage you to consider the questions we've looked at and consider what it means to rightly remember Christ and anticipate his return as we partake of the elements. Let's distribute the elements.